Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible with you and you'd like to use one that we have here, um, the pew Bibles that are on the back of the pew in front of you, our passage will be found on page 948. You can also find the text printed in, uh, on page 8 in your order of service this morning. We'll be looking at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Uh, as we come to this passage, it's important to remember where Paul has been. We've, been. we've spent over a year now in Romans, and we'll be finishing up in the next several months, but we can kind of lose sight of what Paul's been saying, especially with Advent thrown in the middle there. And so um, in Romans chapter 12, Paul began transitioning to providing us a picture of what transformed lives look like, of what God, by his grace, is seeking to do in us as people who have been shaped by the work of Jesus Christ. And last week, uh, we saw that verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, this worshipful life of service to God, that it not only includes how we treat one another and how we conduct ourselves within the body of Christ, but it also applies even to how we view those who treat us as enemies and those who seek to do evil. And kind of in summary of that, we saw that God's promise of perfect justice enables us to seek justice, but to also leave room for God's wrath. And this week, what we see is that this transformation shapes how we relate even to the governing authorities placed over us. Boom. (laughs) Yikes, Paul, what are you doing? Is uh, what some of us might be thinking. Don't you know that government is something that we're not supposed to talk about, right? It's it's uncomfortable. It's controversial. Um, Conversations around government and politics um, could call to mind some unpleasant interactions that we've had or things that we hear. Um, But Paul knows exactly what he was doing. And This idea of church and state and politics being controversial is nothing new. It was in Paul's day as well. He's writing from the context of Judaism. Um, And if you look at the Old Testament history of the people of God, they were well aware that the state can be harmful to God's people. And uh, there was a whole line of thinking of um, the zealots that their job was to overthrow illegitimate forms of government and set up God's one true government. So Paul's writing, understanding that context of his Jewish people. He's also writing in the context of Rome as a whole. He knew about the blessings of the Pax Romana. He knew what it was to be a Roman citizen and even receive some of those protections But he also knew firsthand the wickedness that went on in the Roman Empire. He himself endured uh, much at the hands of governing officials. He knew of the infanticide, the immorality. He knew that historically, many in the church that he's writing to at Rome, many of them who were Jewish believers had been forced out of the city several years ago as um, all the Jews were forced out of that location because of a religious controversy. So Paul knew this wasn't a nice, easy thing to talk about, right, or to write about. Um, It's interesting how many uh, try to claim that Paul was ignorant as he wrote this, that there's something that he just didn't understand. He he didn't know how bad government could be, and so he's just kind of writing in this like, oh, wouldn't this be nice form? 
Or um, maybe he thought that Jesus was coming so soon that he didn't have to give much thought to how Christians should relate to government, so I'll just pen these few words and then move on. Uh, One commentator says that the history of interpretation of this passage is to try as hard as we can to make it not say what it clearly says. (laughs) That's humbling uh, to realize, isn't it? Uh, We may sit here and say, well, that's not the case. We take the Bible seriously. We have a high doctrine of Scripture. We're going to hear it on its terms. But I think it's just important, as those who are trying to think maturely as Christians, to just realize that there are all kinds of things that can cloud our perception as we come to a text like this. Um, We have to be careful, because one of the things that can happen is we can think that our present situation as those in an American context are so different, so unique, that they don't apply much to what Paul had to say here. Uh, It can cloud our ability to hear what Paul is saying. Another thing that we just have to understand before we approach the passage is that a lot of times we come to a text like this with our own list of questions. And they might not be the questions that Paul is immediately trying to answer here. As Americans, we have some questions just built into our thinking, don't we? Uh, Was the American Revolution justified biblically? Um, Which party should we vote for in 2024? Notice how either or that automatically gets framed up. What government was right in their approach to COVID and what should we have done? Too soon. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so questions like that are important to understand that they're, they are swirling around in this room, right? And we all have opinions about those things. But we need to make sure that those questions don't cloud our ability to hear what the text is clearly saying. Um, and so I invite you uh, to set those questions aside And let's just try in the next several minutes to focus on what what Paul is saying and what he wants us to understand about how the transformed Christian life relates to governing authorities. And my prayer is that the things that I would say would not be taking shots at anything. It is, I tell you, I have gone through this sermon so many times trying to take out anything that would be unnecessarily inflammatory. And other than the reference of COVID, um, they're all gone. So you've, you've endured the hardest part. Um, that said, I think it's convicting to all of us, right? So just know my posture is to come and and hold forth to you what the Bible's saying without um, partisan distractions of of any form. And my prayer is that God would renew our minds, that we would come to see government and our response to it more and more how he sees it. And so that's what I hope to do this morning. So enough caveats uh, we can get into the text this morning. Our passage is Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And uh, let me read that, and then we'll pray and ask God's help. This is God's word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is for your good, or in authority, sorry? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, 
For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how it gives us clarity into how you view things and how we can respond. And to what you are at work doing in us now by your spirit through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would do that work today. As we consider your word, may your spirit work upon our hearts. Give us ears to hear what you say and and faith to believe uh, what can be true of us because of the grace that you are showing to us each and every day. So we ask your help for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we walk through this passage, we'll look at three main points. Um, The first is how to view governments. Second, how to respond to governments. And third, how to give to governments. So how to view, how to respond, and how to give to governments. And I'll walk you through those as we go along. Um, But the first thing that we see from this passage is how to view governments. And the Bible says even more than this, but this is a a very good summary of, of some key points. So as we think of how to view governments, there are two main things that Paul explains about how we're to look at them. The first thing is that government is a legitimate authority. Government is a legitimate authority. Notice how the passage begins in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so government, like other institutions like marriage, uh, is, is not just something that people have thought up on their own. Governmental authorities is something that God has appointed, something that he's ordained, something that he's even commanded in various ways. And part of what this passage says is not only is this institution something that um, God sees as fitting and good for us, but also he providentially oversees it. He says, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now that word there, instituted, it means they've been set in place. Um, And it's interesting because it's a word that's derived from the root word of submission. And so part of what's happening here is there's a little bit of a play on words that Paul is doing. He's saying we as Christians voluntarily place ourselves under leaders. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We submit to them. And we do so because whether they know it or not, they have been placed in their position ultimately by God. And so part of what Paul wants us to see right away is that from a human perspective, rulers come to power for all sorts of reasons, right? Um, It may be because they were born into the right family. It may be because it was the people's popular choice. It may be because of a military overthrow. But... The transformed mind sees that behind all of this is the sovereign hand of God. And because government is a legitimate authority. 
But that's not all that this passage says. Um, It's not that those who come to power have the right to just do whatever they want. Um, Not only is government a legitimate authority, but government is also a limited authority. That's the second thing we see in how to view governments. Government is a limited authority. Paul uses some surprising terms here for government. In verse 4b, he says, he is the servant of God. In verse 6b, he says, the authorities are ministers of God. Just stop and think about that for a moment. Paul's writing this, and who's the main authority in his life? Nero, right? Uh, And he is speaking of Nero as a minister and servant of God in some sense. And so what does that mean? Well, um, what that means is this. Those who are in governing authority are not their own boss. They have been placed there by God. Uh, Even in a monarchy, uh, the person in authority is not his own boss. It also means that the people that they govern are not their ultimate boss, even in a democracy. Rulers are servants and ministers of God, who is the one who's given them that authority in the first place, right? And so it's a limited authority. And as their boss, God has given them a job description. And Paul unpacks this here. This is how government is supposed to work. This is how it is more or less supposed to work. Notice verse 4b, he, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out wrath on the wrongdoer. And so if we stop and we think about this, especially in the context last week of people who do evil and seeking justice, part of what we see is the wrath that God repays to those who do wrong um, that we're not to carry out individually in a revenge-seeking way. It's carried out in part by the rulers of this age, and it will be carried out in perfection one day uh, in God's good timing. But presently, the rulers of this age are carrying out this measure of justice. And therefore, Paul says, if someone does wrong, they should fear. Because verse 4 tells us that God has authorized the government to bear the sword. Um, That's probably generally speaking to the the right to punish those who violate government's laws. All right? And so on the flip side, though, if one is doing good, she should not need to fear. Because that should be met with approval. Verse 4 says, for he is God's servant for your good. So we could just summarize it here as this. God's job description for government, for the authority that he is authorized to have, is to reward good and to punish evil. That's the job description that God has given to governing authorities. Now, I think one thing that's important to ask ourselves is what is this good and evil uh, that the government is put in authority to oversee Um, Last week, when we talked about doing good to enemies, we made the point that it is God who ultimately defines what is the good that we do and what is the evil that we refrain from. And the same is true here. God is the one who defines what is good and evil. 
But also notice that Paul is speaking very generally here. He is saying that this is something that all people can submit to in some way. He's not claiming that all governments need to be Christian governments that are turning to the Bible as their source of truth. He's not specifying that there. And so what he is saying is that he's building on what he said earlier in Romans chapter 2. That all of humanity, and what Paul refers to there are Gentiles in particular, who do not have special revelation, who do not have the Mosaic law, all of humanity, as those who are made as image bearers, are able to a certain extent to discern what is good and evil, what by nature the law requires. Uh, That's what Paul says there in Romans 2. And that understanding of good and evil written upon the hearts of image bearers is what God is expecting governmental leaders to, at minimum, be carrying out. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament, right? Um, Even nations who did not have the scriptures, they were held accountable, and we see this specifically in the prophets, but there's other examples in narrative as well. They were held accountable for their own sense of right and wrong that they had as image bearers, that moral law that was written on their hearts, um, and that is explained in even further ways in the Noahic covenant. And in as much as they kept in accord with that justice that they knew was right, um, there was not judgment for that overall. But when they were violating things like that, like oppressing the poor and being doing injustice and harming the people of God, there was judgment for those things. Um, we as believers also are able to turn to special revelation where even more clarity is given to what good and evil is. And so that can be a helpful thing as we're thinking through um, what we are to do and what we should be seeking to do to our neighbors. Okay, so that's just a summary of how we're to begin by viewing governments. It's a legitimate authority, it's a limited authority, and it's to punish evil and reward what is good. That brings us to point two. How are we to respond to governments? How are we to respond to governments? Paul gives us an overarching command right there in verse one. Let every person, believer and unbeliever, be subject or submit to the governing authorities. There it is. And um, he gives some explanation in verses 2 to 4. And then he summarizes that command again in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. And so let's stop and think, what does this mean? The term be subject or submit is to voluntarily place oneself under the authority of another. It's not the exact same term as the word obey. And I think that's helpful for us to think about, to have a distinction between those two terms in our minds. Douglas Moo, a commentator, says that submit means to acknowledge that as a general rule, certain people or institutions have authority over us and we place ourselves under that authority. And so that's to be our posture, one of submission to these authorities. And then he spells out what is forbidden as well. And he uses two different words there in verse 2. One of the bummers of our translation, I think, is that it uses the word resist for both of those. Um, 
And so I'll just flesh it out a little bit more for you. But in the first part of verse 2, it says, Therefore, whoever resists, and that word there is the opposite of submit. It's whoever opposes. So there's this pattern of not submitting, but of instead opposing uh, that he's speaking of. And then as he goes on in verse 2, he says, Those who resist, and that's a different term, and that term could be translated rebel, and it's used throughout Greek literature to speak of an armed resistance or an insurgency. And so, what Paul is saying we're not to be doing as Christians is having an overall attitude that government has no right over us or to organize violent resistance against governmental order. And to do so is an action that brings responsibility before God. It's really what he's arguing there. And in verse 5, he summarizes two reasons of why Christians are to act this way toward government. Uh, He says, first, it's to avoid God's wrath. To avoid God's wrath. Part of what he's getting at is this. As believers, we're not to be doing evil in the first place, right? That's not what God wants us to be doing. Um, how good are we at that? I think we're all trying to grow in it to varying degrees. One thing that helps us keep from doing evil is the threat of punishment if we do it. And um, that is part of what Paul is saying here. He wants us to be doing what is good in verse 3. If you do wrong or if you do, it's the word evil, be afraid. For the government is a helpful motivation to keep you from Doing evil, which Christians aren't to be doing in the first place. But, and so on the one hand, we we, um, submit to government to avoid God's wrath and to keep us from doing evil things. But the other thing that Paul is arguing here is that resisting and seeking to overthrow the government is no small matter for Christians. If God desires governing authority and he's put the current leaders in place, then to oppose them, And to not submit by resisting or rebelling is rebelling against God, it is sin, and it brings judgment. That's the argument of what Paul is saying here. Now, everyone's probably wondering this. I'll get to it in a minute, but just so we can all breathe. There may be a situation where what the government is doing is so evil that you resist, but what he's arguing here is you have to make sure that is actually right to do before God. And that really leads to the second part of his reasoning. He says to avoid God's wrath, which is um, be doing the good and avoiding the evil, and part of evil is rebelling against government. But then also, he says, for the sake of conscience. The way Paul uses the word conscience here is to speak of how believers have an awareness of God and his ways that is shaped by Scripture. And what he means here is this, believers know something that others may not know. And it's what he's just told us. God has ordained these authorities and he's using them for his purposes in the world. We know that from scripture. And that um, helps calibrate our conscience into how we think about responding to the government. There's an added layer to submitting to the government as Christians that just ordinary citizens don't have in the same way because we know that God put them in place 
And unless we have a really good reason, going against them is going against what God wants us to be doing overall. Peter talks about it this way in 1 Peter 2. Now, by the time we come to 1 Peter 2, uh, the governmental situation is a lot different. Persecution is increasing uh, rapidly, and it's, it's a hostile situation. And Peter himself says that we submit to every human institution as believers. Why? Because of the Lord, because of the Lord Jesus. What it means is this. When he says we do so for the sake of conscience, we can know as believers that unless it is evil, Submitting to the human institution is what's honoring to the Lord Jesus. That's a helpful thing to know in the midst of all the complexities that we face, isn't it? Well, that brings us to another question, right? What if these government leaders aren't doing their job that God has defined for them to do? And I think the answer to that is what we see consistently throughout Scripture. That like all authority, the authority that God has given to government is a limited authority. Charles Hodge, who's a Reformed uh, pastor, was a Reformed pastor, theologian, he says it like this, All authority is of God. No person has any rightful power over other people which is not derived from God. All human power is delegated, it's given from God, and it's ministerial, meaning it's for the purpose of serving others and and for their good. And so what this means is this, that while God has given authority and put institutions in place where that authority is to be exercised, that authority is always limited by what it means for us to obey God rather than men. It's always limited in that way. Um. I think that a helpful way of thinking about it is this, and maybe it's not helpful to you and we could always talk about it later, but um, I just think it's a good way to view it. Um, I am, as a believer in particular, to be in submission to the authorities over me, but I also have to ask the question of what that submission looks like in the situation. Because sometimes the person or the institution is not doing good and is doing evil. And because of that, my submission becomes much more limited. And it may even look like not obeying or resisting the person who's in authority over me. Does that make sense? And what I like about that is this. It frames it up as submit is the thing that we are called to do. It's a way of life as Christians. But the question is, what does that look like and how do I do it? Not these questions of, do I submit or do I not submit? Um, I think it's more helpful to frame it from the posture of, I do this, but it might be very small, or it might even look like in this situation going against what would be commonly thought of as submission. Now, where we draw those lines is really tricky as believers. 
And we are going to have different views about that. We're going to talk in Romans 14 about how we handle our differences. But I'll tell you this. This is one place where Christians in different countries and different congregations and within the same congregation are going to draw the line in different places of what their submissive response should be to the governing authorities. But what Paul wants us to do is start with an understanding of government's legitimacy and limited authority in our lives and then go from there. It's interesting to me that tomorrow our country will be remembering the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, And I, I find it just fascinating to be thinking about that in correlation with Romans 13 and just how much Uh, We owe our African-American brothers and sisters who have shown us very well, I think, in history and our country's history of what it looks like to resist evil submissively. Um, And so there are examples throughout history that we can look to as we answer these questions. All right, so that's the main kind of, there's the instruction-y part of it. We're going to talk about what do we do in just a minute. But I'd like to just take a breath because I feel like I'm not breathing very deeply. (laughs) Can't imagine why. Um, (laughs) But here's what I'd like to just talk to you about. Um, Do you hear the overall posture that Paul is describing? Um, One of the things, it's important for us as we come to Scripture that we acknowledge our own cultural biases that we might be bringing to the text. And I think it's safe to say that as Americans, um, it may be easy for us to miss the idea that the mature Christian life is a posture of being under authority. It's not just under authority to governments. It's submitting to one another. It's submitting to our church leaders. It's submission in various aspects of the home. And it's submission to governing authorities. It's a placing ourselves under authority. In our country, we celebrate being the land of the free. And freedom is a great thing. I am thrilled that I am here freely preaching to you all. Uh, and we can hear God's word and go about our lives. And I'm very thankful for the dignity that that freedom gives us, um, that it gives to its citizens. And I'm thankful for many who have made immense sacrifices for us to enjoy the freedom that we are experiencing right now. But it's important for us to also remember that true biblical freedom is not autonomy, Biblical freedom is not saying no one can tell me what to do. And when we, if we drift into that, we've lost sight of uh, how Christianity should shape our posture. We were made to be people who were both ruled and who rule. We were created as God's image bearers to be under the rule of God himself as our king, Right? But we were also created to rule, to male and female, have dominion over the earth and shape culture in a way that's glorifying to God as, as that rule expands throughout the world, right? That, that's back what's going on in Genesis 1. And so as people, we need both things. If we're ruled without the dignity of being treated as image bearers, you know what that is? That's tyranny, Now, we as Americans are usually pretty good at sniffing that out, aren't we? Hey, wait a minute. 
no taxation without representation. Tyranny. Like, so, so we see that side of it. And that's good. We can have an eye for the justice that is to be for all image bearers. Um, but ruling ourselves without oversight is anarchy. And we may be less aware of that. The, the renewed mind of Scripture sees that the Bible curbs both tyranny and anarchy. And it leads us to a place of both being ruled and ruling with dignity. And so I could summarize that as this. This passage reminds us that our posture towards government as Christians is ultimately to be more shaped by Jesus than the cultural context we find ourselves in. Jesus knows what it's like to live under wicked and corrupt rulers of this age. Herod sought to kill him when he was just a baby. The religious leaders who should have welcomed and protected him sought to destroy him. Uh, He was put to death as a criminal, even though he had only done what was good. And yet he lived a life of perfect submission to human governments that we can see uh, as he walked this earth. He didn't align himself with the zealots who say that we honor God only by overthrowing the state. And he also didn't align himself with the religious leaders who were seeking power by aligning themselves with the state. He gave to Caesar what was Caesar's as he gave his entire life to obedience to the will of God. And that's what he calls us as his followers and even as, America, as Christians who are also Americans. He calls us to this posture of proper submission because that is what saying Jesus is Lord actually calls us to do. And so that's... Again, just summary form, so much could be written about all of this, right? But that's how to view governments from this passage. That's how to respond to governments. And then I want us to look thirdly at how to give to governments. How to give to governments. Paul moves from this overarching call to submit into practical application of ways to do this. And in verse 7, he summarizes it by saying, giving to all what they're owed giving to those who are owed what they're due. Now, why is, it, why is it important to know this? It's important because as Christians, we know that governments by nature are going to be a mixed bag, aren't they? Um, supporting governments financially and with our lives, and we'll talk about it in a minute, it, it usually involves some good things overall, unless it's just purely evil. Um, but it also involves supporting some things that are usually not good or that are evil. And so Paul wants to clarify us for us two main categories of what we can give to the government, even in this mixed condition. The first is that we pay taxes and revenue. That we pay taxes and revenue. He says this in verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. Verse 7, Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes and revenue. And the reason Paul uses two different words there is because it encompasses all sorts of taxes. Direct taxes like income taxes and property taxes, he says, pay them. 
And also this word revenue referred to indirect things like tolls and fees and sales tax. And he says, pay it. And so I think the important takeaway is this, that even though those taxes go toward things that are not how we would want to use our money always, um, for them, it was supporting the Roman army and the imperial cult that worshiped Caesar. And yet God says that it's good and right for us to pay these things to support the government because they're his ministers devoted to this task that he's given them to do. And so we pay our taxes and revenue, but it's not just our money. Secondly, we also give respect and honor. We give respect and honor. The position of authority itself is one that's worthy, Paul says, of respect and honor, regardless of what we think of the character or the actions of the person who holds the office. Now that's hard no matter who your person is. <laughs> um, a level of respect and honor should adorn our speech and our posture toward those who are in authority over us. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't honestly and truthfully evaluate character and action and policies. We can speak truth about these things for sure. But just like we are to be characterized as believers, as people who have a posture of submissiveness toward authority because of God, so also we're to be characterized by not being derogatory in how we treat or speak about those who are in authority over us. Sometimes we talk about Christians being countercultural. There's a lot to be said about that. I think what Paul has just talked about here, of a posture of submissiveness and honor and respect is revolutionary. And I think it's very countercultural to our present um, social climate. And so as we kind of summarize all of this, when we think about how to give toward governments, we could really summarize it as this. And and I want us to just think about this applicationally as we're here in point three. We can treat the government as a gift from God. We're to view it as a gift from God and we treat and engage it as a gift from God. And what that means is the Bible's view of government reminds us that it is a good that he has given to us. And that is to shape our thinking. Um, but it, and so what that does is that reminds us that government isn't a God to be worshipped as though it's going to solve all of our problems. It gives us an interesting lens by which to hear candidates, doesn't it? Because so often the promises that they're making sound very much like they're promising to be a Messiah or a mini-God. And, and we can see through that, right? We can see the, the limited good that it's able to do. And, and it helps us from keeping government, from making government a god, because we also know that every government, and even the very best ones, will have limitations. And it's not until our Lord Jesus returns that we will experience the fullness of what this is meant to be. And so we view it as a good that God has given us. And so it's not God, but on the other hand, as a good gift from God, it's not something that we throw out altogether or just throw to the side or say it has no place in my life. 
Paul calls us to submit to it as much as we're able, to support it financially as we're obligated, and to give respect and honor. Elsewhere, he says we're called to pray for our leaders and seek to live peaceably as citizens as we're able. But as those who live in America, what's amazing is we are so blessed that in our context, there's even more opportunity to give to government by engaging in it as believers. Um, The messiness of government can tempt us to disengage sometimes, doesn't it? And you know, if I were to boil down what I think the overall message is, we're kind of discipled in our thinking typically more by the news than by the Bible. Um, but if I were to say what's, what's at the bottom of some of that discipleship, some of it is this, show up, cast your vote, and then for the next year, just watch a commentary of how either good your guy did or how bad the guy who's not your guy did, and then show up again and do it again. That's a really small view for Americans of what our actual role in this institution um, could be. And so as Christians, we can understand that at least in our context especially, governments can be a place to do a lot of good for our society. This country and our world have been greatly helped throughout history by Christians who viewed government rightly and sought to engage with it well for good. And so I think it's important just to realize this. Government is a good vocation for Christian men and women to pursue. We need Christian lawyers and judges and city council people and mayors and governors and people who serve in Congress and in Senate. These vocations, Paul is saying, are vocations that can legitimately be pursued by Christians. And while it's tricky, just like every other vocation is tricky too, it can do a lot of good. But it's not just pursuing it as a vocation that's something that we should think about as believers. We also all have the opportunity for civic engagement as a way to think about doing good to our neighbors. And this might be something that in prioritizing the importance in the place of the church, which I'm not in any way undoing that, we may sometimes lose sight of as, as a valid thing for us to invest in as Christians. What are ways that God wants to use you to bring good to your neighbor and to curb evil in the world? What are institutions or programs that you could align yourself with that may help you as an instrument of that in this world? It could be in your workplace of seeking to do good to others around you and then using your influence to make sure that good is done for your colleagues or that good is done for others who are under your authority. It could be involvement in your local community, your, your, local, your kids' local school board or sports or clubs or in local government or a neighborhood group that gets together to pursue good things. Maybe it's part of being part of an organization that's working toward a particular need in our society and holding hands with other believers and unbelievers as we seek to do that good. We pray for and support Alternatives Medical Clinic for that very reason, and we support Escondido Women's Shelter, so maybe it's helping out with them or working with Interfaith and helping with people who are facing homelessness. 
Maybe it's going to the border and giving out sandwiches and water to those who are waiting to see if their case will be heard to get into the United States. God uses these common grace institutions as a means of doing good and as a means of curbing evil. It doesn't replace the church. It's not the gospel to give a sandwich or water, but they are good things that people who have been changed by the gospel can pursue. Not because we put our hope in these things, but because we want to help in these things because they are near to the heart of God. So as we conclude, um, I must confess that in in thinking through this for for years, but then also particularly in the past few weeks, just thinking about all these things, it makes me long for something more. (laughs) Does it for you? I want no more complicated. I want no more mixed bag. I want no more imperfect solutions because it's a fallen world. I want no more evil that's constantly pushing up against the good. Do you feel that way? Do you know what that is? That is longing for what we were made for. That is longing for the kingdom of God where God himself rules and reigns forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing today is that even as we consider all the messiness and the complications of these things, part of what we get to do today and celebrate and then participate in in just a few moments is the fact that God sent his son so that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we could one day experience the government, the rule, the kingdom that we were made for. Because Paul says in Colossians 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that is here now. It has begun even now. And one day it will be all that there is. But who will be with us on that day? I was listening to a sermon this week, and it was from a surprising text for me. Zephaniah 3. How many of you were hanging out there this past week? Not a book I've spent a ton of time in. But it's this amazing book of judgment at the beginning, but it ends with this picture for God's people of what it means when God comes as their king. And the picture that it gives I just find so encouraging. And just listen to this for a moment of what is in store for us. It says, he will be in the midst of his people as their king. And when he is, he will clear away all of our enemies so we never again fear evil. He will rejoice over us with gladness and he will quiet us by his love. He will exalt over us with loud singing. Think of that, the sovereign king of the universe bursting into song because you individually are a part of his forever people. It says he will save the lame and the outcast. He will change their shame into praise and renown. 
He will bring us in. He will gather us together. He will make us renowned and praised forever, Zephaniah says. Imagine that. Citizens who fully celebrate with their whole hearts and honor their king and where that king celebrates and honors us in return. That is what will one day be. And God wants to use us to give testimony to that kingdom. And he does so as we relate to the imperfect leaders around us and as we seek to do good and love this broken world until he comes again. And so let's pray that God would help us in these things. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for saving us, making us citizens of your heavenly kingdom. We pray that you would teach us what it means to say, Jesus is Lord, and to truly live as he did in this world where things are so complicated. And we pray that our full and certain hope would be in what will one day be, and that you would help us to point to that and give glimpses of it in the way that we live in this broken world. Help us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.